0: We are continuing in our walk through Nehemiah this fall as we go through our own building program, our own time of uh, construction. We are walking through a book in the Bible where uh, God's people were building. And there is a lot of wisdom and insight and encouragement to be had as we learn from their experience and apply it to our own. This morning I want to talk about spiritual warfare. Uh, Spiritual warfare, it's Something that in many ways we talk about and think about, but uh, in other ways we seem oblivious to. Sometimes I'm surprised in, in my own life and in the relationships and, and in things that I see going on in, in the life of the church and in relationships in, in and around us, how often we fail to see the spiritual dimension of what is going on. There is a spirit, the Scripture says, that we are to guard Uh, that that the Spirit of Christ, that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of unity, and we are to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of faith. And uh, Scripture gives us so many instructions of how to do that in humility and faithfulness and forgiveness. And then there is a spirit that tends toward bitterness and disunity and division and hurt. And they are not the same spirit. But so often in our relationships, we find things going on in our hearts and we find stuff going on, and and we just, right up against it, we just fight and fail to see a spiritual dimension that we have an enemy. We're in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. As the project gets underway, we see opposition arise. Verses 1 to 9 in Nehemiah 4, we read this the word of our Lord. And now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and he was greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite who was beside him, and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And so we built the wall. And the wall was joined together and rose to half its height, for the people had a mind to work But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard of the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem and that it was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God, And we set a guard as protection against them day and night. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word that is living and true. Sharper than any double-edged sword. Dividing soul and spirit, bone and marrow. Here You have spoken and here You speak. Speak to us now. Awaken us from our slumber. Remind us that we are at war. That we might be vigilant to pray and to watch, even as you counseled your disciples in the garden and in your church through the ages, that we would watch and pray and fight the good fight of faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. James Boyce says that opposition is almost always caused by success and not by failure when things start to go forward, particularly as we think in spiritual terms, when a church begins to grow or a church begins to get serious about the Gospel and about ministry, when a church begins to step out in service to their Lord, there is an enemy. An opposition that will rise. Opposition can be a good thing in the sense that it can be a sign that God is at work. That God is doing something. That God is using you. Because the reality is, as followers of Christ, we have an enemy who resists Christ's kingdom. Jesus said He will will build His church even up against the gates of hell. In other words, there there is an opposition. A warfare that goes on. Jesus said in John 15, 18, that if the world hates you, if they despise you, if they mock you, if they resist you, if the world hates you, it's because they hated me before it hated you. You're in good company, you're walking on the right path. Right? The resistance that I met, don't be surprised if you meet it. Don't be surprised, he it, it, it tells the church at different points, at the suffering you were experiencing. You were at war. 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will be despised, will be taunted, will find themselves opposed. Often the lack of conflict can mean that we're not doing anything of consequence. That if the enemy finds it the right thing to do to ignore us, And so sometimes when we find ourselves comfortable and simply clipping along, sometimes it makes me wonder whether we're doing the right things. Because the enemy doesn't seem to be too concerned about us. When Jerusalem lay broken and inactive, the powers around Jerusalem and the Jews ignored them. They were unconcerned with them. They didn't give them a thought. But in Nehemiah 2.10, back if you remember a number of weeks ago, we read that when Senbalite the Horite, Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite the servant heard this, that someone had come, it said that it displeased them greatly. It was the beginning of their anger that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That when God's people rise up, they find themselves opposed. Side note, just on the historicity as we read this about Ballad, I found it interesting anyway. I love these little tidbits that, that, that reinforce the truth of what we're reading, the truth and historicity of the biblical account of what we have here. There was a, uh, an Egyptian town it's called Elephantine. Just on the northern uh, border between Egypt and the rest of Israel at that time, and it was a town that, that existed there for over many centuries. It was discovered in the late 1800s, in the early 19th century, and, and, uh, and unearthed and excavated. And they found hundreds of papyri and letters and documents. A lot having to do with trade and legal documents, uh, often between Egypt and Israel and the nations north of there. And in the midst of the letters, they found one in the dating from the 5th century B.C., that's 2,500 years ago, at the time this is taking place and being written, they find a papyri, extra-biblical, secular source, in a town between there that mentions Sanballat. It writes in this elephantine papyri, we have also set forth the whole matter in a letter in our name, to Daliah and Shelemiah, the sons of Sambalat, who is the governor of Samaria, exactly as the text tells us. The historicity of the scripture is important. And we see that the Samaritan and the Jews already are rivals, right? This is a rivalry. This is taking place in the fifth century BC, uh, in, the late four, in the early 400s. And we see there's already a rivalry that, that this period in the history of the, of the Jews and Samaria both uh, reveals their rivalry, but also helps to cement it in history. This animosity that is growing between them. You know, and remember, probably that it started when the kingdom divided. You had, the north, you had one kingdom under, under Saul and David and his son Solomon, but under Rehoboam, under the fourth king of Israel... Uh, there was something of a civil war and the kingdom divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And a rivalry began. In fact, they were often, God's people in these two segments, were often at war. And because Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom began to set up places of worship to rival the temple. Which is against the Scripture. And we see just that the the division that begins to take place and the rivalry, even in the place of worship. And we see that it comes down. We see it in John 4 when Jesus speaks with the woman at the well. The Samaritan woman says to him, How is it that you, a Jew, are asking a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Right? And parenthetically, John adds, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They have no, you know, and the conversation goes about whether we'll worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Jesus says, neither one. (laughs) That that worship will pass away, whether worship here on this mountain in Samaria, or in Jerusalem, which is where the Jews would say it was. And Jesus said, the day is coming where it will be neither. We'll be worshiping here in Hickson. But we see this animosity, deeply set in here as it fans to flame in the hearts of the Samaritans and the Syrians and the Israelites. Balat wanted to protect the prominence and the prosperity of Samaria. They stand now as a strong city and as a strong part of that area and all the trade, and you know why that piece of, of real estate was conquered so many times by so many uh, nations, whether it was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. It is, it is the literal land route between Europe and parts of Asia, Persia, and Babylon. It is the There's a desert in between. It's the it's the trade route into Egypt and all of the south. Sanballat and his little nation now stand in the midst of that prospering, in the middle of it. And if Jerusalem is revived to their south, closer to Egypt, they will lose their prominence politically and economically. It will cost them, and so they want to keep Jerusalem weak and broken. So in verse 1, he hears about, again, the Israelite plan to rebuild. He heard that they were building the wall and he's angry and he's greatly enraged. The enemy is always angry and greatly enraged. He's been enraged for millennia now. Samballot jeers against the Jews and it says in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, it's a very public thing, what are these feeble Jews doing? And he begins to mock them in various ways. Then we hear Tobiah jump in. Yeah, what are they building? You know, if a small animal jumps on it, it's going to fall over. They can't rebuild the walls. Who'd they? You know, that's a huge job. You know, if you think about the walls, I've said this before, but I don't know, there's a brick facade on the other side of this, this thing. And you've got to think of the wall that they're building almost as tall as that brick facade, it's like 20 feet high. And at the base, it needs to be, you know, two and a half or three feet wide in order to support that kind of height. It's a huge task. And they mock their efforts to, to do it. And so he gives the content of all their jeering. And it's funny, I think you know, Tobiah comes across as side of kind of a sidekick. It says he's a servant in different ways. And, you know, gives his jeer and his list of taunts. And you know, Tobiah's like, yeah, you know, even if a fox jumps on it, it's going to fall over. They are weak, and they are weak. The people are feeble. Jerusalem is not well populated. They have suffered greatly. So how does God's people answer? In the midst of this kind of thing, they just begin to get some hope. They just begin to to start to restore their future and their fortunes. They just begin to move in the right direction. And the enemy begins to angrily... Enrage, jeer and oppose and come against them and to mock them. And the answer of God's people is in verses four and five: "Hear, O our God. How do God's people answer? They give it just as they got it. They return evil with evil the way you and I do, when we get it, and we want to give it right back. You're going to talk to me like that? I'll talk to you like this. You're going to be like that? I'll show you how it is. Right? We give, we like to do that kind of a thing. We like to return what we get. We like to rise up. We are defensive and justified because they started it. But they don't. There's not a word to their enemies. But there are words to God. Right? Their hearts do ache under it. There, there is. It does affect them. They are hurt, and they, but they cry out to God. They pray. They say, God, You handle them. They're Your enemies. And we are weak, and it is broken down. And, and we, we can't do it. Only You can do it. They're provoking You to anger. This is Your project. This is what You are doing. You protect us. You foil their plans. You stand in the gap. In many ways, this is what we would call an imprecatory prayer. I don't know if you've heard that word, but there are some prayers in the Old Testament that are they are not the kind of prayers you and I usually pray. They're a little bit harsh. You know, these prayers of don't cover their guilt. Let, do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight. No, rise up. They've provoked you. You need to rise up and take them down. It's uh, God's justice and His punishment was closer and more immediate in the Old Testament in the way that they experienced it and, and sought it. And this prayer acknowledges that God is righteous and God is just and it is God who will ultimately punish the wicked and deal with those at all things. There will be an accounting and these things will be uh, dealt with on that day. And they're just saying, bring that day forward. You know, rise up now. And in some ways, I, I wrestle with these prayers in the Old Testament. We know Jesus tells us very clearly to trust ourselves to God who judges justly and to pray for those who persecute you, bless and curse not, that kind of thing. And, and so there should be that kind of a thing going on in our hearts. And there is some, some dispute about whether there's a place or not to pray a prayer like this or whether Jesus' instruction really overrides it in a New Testament dispensation in the time of, of the clearness of the cross and the call of the Gospel and the, and the window of opportunity for salvation to the nations in that way. And I wrestle with it too, to be honest, because I found prayers like this when I saw a video of 30 Libyan Christians being marched along a beach by extremists and thrown to the ground, and to see them systematically decapitated, there were prayers like this in my heart. Oh my God, don't let this continue. Oh God, protect your people. Rise up! Don't this ought not to be. There is that within us that knows that God is the just judge, and these things ought not to be. So I. I understand where their hearts are. I I wrestle and at the same time pray for God's grace. And as Jesus says, to save those. Paul himself was a murderer and came to grace and mercy. Moses killed a man and found mercy. And so we pray for that grace. but, But we pray. None of them rose up and retaliated. They prayed. They sought God to work and to... Save them. And then it says, what else did they do? They prayed, and in verse 6, and so we built the wall. And I kind of love that. I don't know, those bald, you know, just you know, matter of fact. And so we built the wall. I know they were you know, against us and you know, the, the powers that be. And they are the powers that be. He's the governor of the strongest region in the area and he is enraged against them. And it says, we prayed that God would protect us and we went on with the work. Onward and forward. Prayed that God would take care of His business. And we rose up to take care of our business. We see this. It's powerfully in the Scripture again and again. That they're praying and asking God to do what he, only He can do doesn't dismiss us from rising up and doing what He has called us to do in so many ways. So we built the wall. And the work progressed. And it rose up to half the height of, of the walls like this. This just might happen. It's happening. The gaps are closing. The wall is taking shape. The people had a mind to work and and they worked and it was was happening. Verses 7 and 8, when Sam Ballad and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, in other words, everybody around them that had an interest in keeping Israel broken and weak, did not like it. Hearing of the repairing of the walls that it actually is going forward. We were angry. They began to plot together and to come and to fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion. And so we prayed again, verse 9. We prayed to our God and we set a guard to protect day and night. And you love again that juxtaposition. We prayed to God. And we set a guard. It reminds me in chapter 2 when we talked about this when he was before Artaxerxes in the beginning of this whole thing. And Artaxerxes kind of opened the door and asked him a question and it says that he prayed to the God of heaven. And he said to the king. Right? And they prayed to our God and we set a guard. We asked God to do what only God can do and then we took faithful, deliberate action. And so let's step back for just a minute from this and pull the curtain back from the whole thing. What is going on here? When we look behind the curtain, we know that the devil is a real being. We know that there is a warfare that rages and has been raging for millennia. We know that that there is an enemy of God and because he's an enemy of God, he's an enemy of God's people and of God's work and of God's glory. He is unrelenting in His will to thwart God's plan and to destroy His people. We see Him from the garden in Genesis 3 to the early pages of Job where He wants to sift God's people and bring them down to the pages of the New Testament that are saturated with this sense of warfare. The larger picture of Scripture reminds us there is a spiritual dimension to history and a spiritual dimension not only to the big history, but to each of our history. And every conflict that you're in. And the stuff that goes on in your heart. And where there starts to be bitterness and division and all of this. We need to understand there is a spiritual dimension to what is going on. When we are about the King's business, we enter into a war zone. That seems to be the clear teaching of Scripture. We enter a war zone. We must not forget. This perspective is important. The New Testament, it comes out over and over in Second Corinthians 10, 3, and 4. It speaks about it. It says, we are waging a warfare, not with weapons of the flesh, but, but our weapons are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You know, there, we're waging a war, but it's a spiritual war. You know, our weapons are not a flesh, because our enemy's not a flesh. And how often we forget this, I've found it so many times in different places where I find that conflict, or I'm engaged in that conflict, and we think the people that we're dealing with are the enemy. And we need to remember, and, it, and what saves me again and again is to say, "I have an enemy, and it's not this person. It's not my wife. When I'm in the midst of it and I find my heart starting to get hard, or I start to, you know, become embittered about something, or, you know, sometime when we're in, yes, yes, we do fight. Um, we, you know, we're, oh, I fight, okay. <clears throat> so, so when I fight, you know, with my wife, and um, what saves me again and again is to remember that the devil would like nothing more than to destroy my marriage. And it makes me angry. Not at my wife, but at at my enemy and at myself for letting myself become his tool. And when do I become his tool? When I become angry, which does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. When I start to become bitter, which is a foothold, the Scripture tells us, for the devil. Right? When I start to become hardened, you know, and we know that our hearts are hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, all these things that the Scripture warns us about. And I know that when my heart starts going there, whether it's in my, in my marriage or with someone in church, and yeah, it begins, it's happened. It happens here at times when, you know, we're human that way. You know, God uses people, but the devil also uses people. And often they use the same people. And sometimes it's me. And sometimes it may be you. When your heart, right, there's a spirit that says, preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. And when I find in my heart divisions and criticism and unhappiness and anger and bitterness and and rage and the desire for division and these kind of things, let me just ask you, am I in the flesh or in the Spirit? And when I recognize that the weapons of my warfare are, are not carnal, they're not fleshy, my enemy is not the person, particularly if it's a brother or sister in Christ, particularly if it's... to be aware that there is a warfare Ephesians 6 describes the battle. We have a powerful enemy. It says he shoots flaming arrows at us. And he wants to set our world on fire. What does that look like? I think it often looks like our relationships exploding and blowing up. Raging. You know, When he shoots these flaming arrows looking to cause destruction, a blaze. We, with the shield of faith. Remembering breastplate of righteousness, the sword of truth, right? The armor that we should bear as we do battle with a spiritual enemy that would love to divide and to destroy at home and at church, at work and wherever else. Of Peter says, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, who gets devoured? What does it look like? You're not going to be physically eaten, but when your heart, when your mind becomes enraged and engaged in all that stuff that the Scripture says to put off, right? All your anger and your bitterness and your jealousy and your, you know, to put off all these things. You know, when has this enemy devoured us? When those things have devoured our heart and our mind. And those are the things when we're in the flesh and... And in that sense, being used of an enemy rather than in the Spirit. And being full of the fruits of love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness. It is the passions of the flesh, it's, Peter tells us, it wage war against our soul. And those passions are what the devil stirs up. Right? The devil stirs them up to wage war against our soul and the church. The only way He can get us... I mean, there are times we have external enemies, don't get me wrong, governments and organizations that will come against and, and we, we are wrestling some of those things and the freedom of religion. But understand this, most churches that fall, fall from the inside. Most marriages that fall, fall from the inside because the enemy got a foothold. He devoured a heart. And it turned the mind into, you know, where it's not, you know, it's by the renewing of our minds in what way? And all the putting off of all those things. And following Jesus. (laughs) Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, not pride, not self-righteousness, not self-justifying, not all these things. Put on humility and meekness and patience. Bearing with one another. And if you have a complaint, any complaint, against another one, a brother or sister, he's writing this to the church. Why? Because the church needs this. The the church needs to know that, that we will have these things it is our own passions that wage war against our soul. And so we have to be we have to watch and pray and we have to if if we obeyed and followed this one scripture which describes Christ it would save our marriage. It would save our relationships. It would save our churches. If we would forgive even as the Lord has forgiven us and set us free from wrath. Oh, my friends, I know it's a serious topic. You know, but spiritual warfare is real. And we have to, even as these guys did, to do some of the right things. And the first is to remember that we have a real enemy. And it's not the guy down the pew. It's not the person sleeping in your bed. You know, it's not all those people where we like to fix those emotions stirred up by the enemy that destroy We have to remember and to know there is a warfare and we're in the midst of it. And so to do what they did, and just briefly, which was this, when the the enemy is angry and enraged and is opposing and plotting and fighting against us, I think sometimes we see it in the amount of sickness that we encounter and suffering and marriages that are struggling. The enemy gets a foothold. That we do a few things, and number one is to pray. That's what they did. They didn't strike out against their enemy. They didn't curse them. They didn't strike back. They didn't get evil for evil. They prayed. They sought God to do what God, the God to do His business so that we could do our business. To seek and plead for that favor and protection and that unity. And to make me that person that Colossians describes and the New Testament describes. And to save me by reminding me that when anything else is owning my mind and my heart, that is not of the Lord and I need to recognize the foothold of the enemy to find freedom. To continue the work To take courage, is verse 6. So we built the wall. We pressed on. We prayed and we pressed on. But in verse 9, it also says, as as the danger became more real, it says we prayed to our God and we set a guard of protection. That would be my encouragement to you as we continue not only in this process, but in the months and the years ahead. It's a reality that we don't ever graduate from. We're at war. There's an enemy that says that he constantly prowls. And he wants to destroy your relationships because that destroys everything else. To remember and to set a guard in our own hearts that no root of bitterness, which is a foothold of the devil, would take root. That we would watch and guard our hearts for that critical, judgmental stuff that goes on and we play that tape versus the the tapes of grace and mercy that that are called to renew our minds in. The p- devil plots to destroy the new Jerusalem. And we are that new Jerusalem. And he wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy our church. So we must pray and work and set a watch on our hearts. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank You that Your Word is true and living and that You... Show us the truth and You reveal to us the world of a Spirit and the spiritual dimension to things that we are often blind to. And Father, help us. Come near this morning and take the blinders away and fill us with Your Spirit and renew us by Your grace and and renew in us a desire to be instruments of Your mercy, instruments of unity and, and grace, instruments of Your kingdom and its advance that we might enter into the building and that we would not be part of the problem. Oh, awaken us to the schemes of the enemy and let us see He is our enemy. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Oh, come near in that power and work in Your church. Protect Your people that make the work go forward. Bring glory and honor to Your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.